Hello and welcome to the premiere episode of Tully's Take on History. My name is Stuart Tully. I'm a professor of history at Nichols State University in Thibodeau, Louisiana. And this is going to be the premiere episode of what I hope will be a series of basically me talking about historical things. I've been doing this on Facebook for a while where I write about a topic and after some feedback I've gotten some requests to do this in audio format. Now my background is in American history. Uh, I got my doctorate from Louisiana State University in Baton Rouge in 2016. My dissertation was on African-American owned record labels. In fact, a revision of that dissertation is going to be released by University of Mississippi Press in book format sometime next year. Here at Nichols, I teach on several subjects. I'm in the regular rotation for African-American history. I teach our U.S. History Survey. I also do several new classes on pop culture, uh, the movies. I have a class coming out next year about uh, the impact of rap music on American history. So I'm pretty well-rounded when it comes to that, which is actually pretty useful because today I'm going to be talking about Kanye West. Now, a hallmark I try to have in my historical Tully Takes on History is I try to be as even-keeled as possible. Um, I do have an interest in politics and religion and things like that, but I try very hard to be moderate and keep it as close to the inside as possible. So today I'll be referring to the Republican Party and evangelicals. I don't want to offend anybody, but I might paint with a very broad stroke. Also, uh, typically my telly take on history is on Facebook. I do it in a question and answer format. I'm going to try to do that today uh, with me asking and answering the questions at the same time. If it doesn't work out, well, we'll take it from there. So, so um, I'm doing Kanye West today. Kanye West, he's been in the news quite a bit. Uh, you might be asking yourself, is he historical? Now, the thing is, as historians, the rule of thumb is about anywhere from 10 to 15 years ago is considered acceptable for an historical inquiry. Uh, generally, there's enough time that's passed that you can get some context or, you know, it's not just immediate events. Uh, Kanye's first solo album came out in 2004, which is 15 years ago, if you can believe it. Time really does fly. So he is definitely historical. And also, especially when we talk about evangelicals and the Republican Party, that's much, much, much older. So clearly okay for historical inquiry. So what's Kanye's background? Well, Kanye Amari West was born on June 8th, 1977, to Ray and Donda West in Atlanta, Georgia. His parents divorced when he was three. And after the divorce, he moved with his mom to Chicago, which he considers to be his hometown. Now, the name Kanye, if you're asking, uh, you probably never heard that name before. Well, it's a Yorba name. Uh, Kanye means first son or heir to the throne, and his middle name Amari means God's chosen or God of the highest in Swahili. Uh, his parents were quite Afrocentric, and so it's only logical they look to Africa to name their child. And it's clear by those names they had a lot of expectations for him. Uh, his father was Ray West. Uh, Ray West was a former Black Panther. When Kanye was born, he was a photographer for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. In later life, he became a counselor, Christian counselor, opened up a couple little businesses and stores, too. Uh, has tried to give his son advice, but they have a pretty distant relationship. They're cordial, but they're not very close, primarily because growing up, Kanye did not spend too much time with his father, about a month or so during the summer. By and large, he lived with his mom in Chicago. Now, his mother, Donda West, uh, he was very close to, exceptionally close to. 
Uh, his mom was born in Oklahoma City in 1949 into a very politically active family. Uh, her maiden name is Williams. Uh, his maternal grandmother worked at a church for about 35 years. His grandfather was kind of a civil rights-y guy. Uh, for instance, whenever Donda West was six, she was arrested for participating in a sit-in her dad put on in Oklahoma City. Uh, later in life, she got a PhD in English from Auburn University. And when Connie was born, she was an English professor at Atlanta's Clark, Univers Clark Atlanta University in Atlanta. Uh, later on, she spent most of her career at Chicago State University, and she actually became chair of the English department there. Uh, Connie's upbringing was actually pretty middle-class, average Americana. Uh, his mom, they were pretty financially secure because it was mom's job. I mean, not ex especially affluent, but very comfortable. He never lacked for anything growing up. Uh, his parents had a pretty amicable divorce. Uh, his parents clearly both adored him, even though he was f f fairly distant to his father. Uh, spends a great deal of time with his maternal grandparents, doing churchy stuff. Um... His grandmother had a strong religious influence on him. Uh, pretty much Sunday mornings growing up, Connie was in church. Uh, Donda's job, his mother's job, also gave him a lot of very interesting opportunities. Uh, for instance, when Connie was about 10, his mom spent a year in Nanjing, China, where she was a visiting professor at the university. Uh, Connie was only foreigner in his class. He didn't even speak the language. Uh, he claimed he, he learned the language decent enough for 10, but he doesn't remember any of it. So you might be thinking, that sounds pretty wonderful. What might be the problem? Well, he never really feels like he fits in. He's the only child, very close to his mother, honestly, outside of his mom. He didn't really have any friends. Um, being the kid of a professor, I mean, you may not be, like, exceptionally wealthy, but you're going to be, you're going to have a lot of opportunities, a lot of access to experiences that most children aren't around. Likewise, you're generally around an older crowd, maybe hang out with your parents' students. You may not be able to relate to kids your age. So, I mean, remember, you know, he, he spent a year in China. Yeah, I was a foreign exchange student, kind of. I mean, when he was 10. Most people don't do that. So, you know, he likes wearing kind of middle-classy things, polo shirts. He worked at the Gap. He doesn't feel like he feels into the street mentality of some of his black classmates and counterparts. But at the same time, he's very Afrocentric. I mean, he's very attuned to civil rights issues. And that kind of puts him on the outs with some of his white classmates. Pretty much in short, he's on two worlds. And in the midst of these two worlds, sorry, I'm going to even drink, Kanye discovers rap music. Um, he's pretty young. He enjoys music. He wants to become a rapper himself. Problem is, he wasn't good at it at all. Yeah, he can make some basic punchline, corny jokes, but he doesn't really have the natural flow. His lyrics are lacking. I mean, he's working very hard to make it better, but he never got the respect from his fellow students or rappers. Honestly, outside of his mom, nobody really believed in his rapping ability. And you're wondering, well, he's a very famous rapper now. How did that happen? Well, when he was about 13, 14 years old, he meets a rap producer by the name of No ID. Uh, his real name is Ernest Wilson. And Wilson could tell that the young Kanye loved rap, but didn't really have the natural skill to become a rapper. So instead, he introduced uh, Kanye to producing. And through producing, Kanye could demonstrate his love for the genre, even though his ability to rap wasn't the best. If you don't know, producing music production is extremely, extremely important in rap music. Um, I could get into it for a while, and I wish I could give you sound bites or something, but this is the first podcast, and also, I don't know if I have to pay people money to play music on these things, so I'm not going to do it. But in the most basic terms, rap producers create the beat of rap music. Like, rappers do the lyrics, but the sound underneath it is done by the producer. It used to be the DJ, but once it became more recorded, producers take way more precedence. And this beat is everything in rap music. 
In the days before SoundCloud or generic beats coming from online or all these easy internet tools, it took a lot of skill, time, and technology to make a decent rap beat. And Kanye was not a good producer at first. A key thing to remember about Kanye in general is that he's not a prodigy. He does not have a ton of natural talent. But he does have a very extreme work ethic. And honestly, having the drive to keep working can honestly get you a lot further than just talent. So No ID teaches Kanye the technique of speeding up old soul songs, like old soul music. That's, that really becomes a hallmark of Kanye's early production, is taking these old soul songs, speeding them up, adding new drum beats, so it comes with a very distinct sounding beat that you really don't hear anywhere else. And Kanye really takes this um, technique that he learns from No ID and turns it into his signature sound. Like, old Kanye beats are pretty much just that. So how's his mom taking this? Well, as always, she's supportive, but she wants him to take his future more seriously. He's getting close to graduating high school, and she wants him to go to college. And it makes perfect sense. Remember, she's not just a professor. She's a department chair. She lived and fought during the Civil Rights Movement to ensure her son would have the best opportunities. For her and a lot of, you know, middle-classy black people, a college education was seen as security. Yeah, he could keep trying to become a rapper-producer, but she wanted to do so in his dorm room, you know, while he's going to class. She wants nothing but success for her son. She's not trying to, like, you know, put a damper on his dreams, but she realizes the music business was incredibly hard to succeed in, and he'd be better off having a practical fallback. Honestly, she sounds like everybody's parents right now. And Kanye does comply. He starts classes at Chicago State, where his mom worked. He does music on the side. But then he starts to produce a little bit more. He realizes that going to class is getting in time with him being in the studio, uh, you know, making tracks. And so around age 20, he drops out of college. And his mom is heartbroken. Uh, she supported her son, but she is very disappointed in the choice. You know, he promised her he'd go back to school one of these days, but he wanted to give it a real go. And so for the next couple years, he's... It's pretty hard struggles. Um, he's living in a cruddy apartment in Chicago. He's producing beats for local acts. He's trying to sign some acts. He tries to join a rap group as a rapper because he's not good enough to get on as a solo artist. Uh, he, he even himself admitted at the time his rhymes were pretty much whack. Uh, but in the late 90s, rap was still very much in a gangster mode and Kanye is not a gangster. But his beats improved and he starts getting uh, more national attention, more artists start recording on his beats, some bigger names. Uh, the biggest name, and we're talking around 2000, 2001 here, is Jay-Z, uh, Sean Corey Carter. At the time, Jay-Z is one of the biggest rappers in the world. Jay-Z's uh, personal label, Rockefeller, is a fairly good-sized destination for rappers. And let's take a second to focus on Jay-Z. Jay-Z is a pretty good foil to Kanye, because Jay-Z kind of represents everything Kanye wanted to be, yet wasn't. Jay-Z, loads of street credibility. You know, he comes from the past, Marcy Projects, he was a drug dealer for a while. He also has this unparalleled natural talent for rapping. According to stories, which may or may not be accurate, Jay-Z would never wrote anything down. He would not write down any rhymes. He would not work out the lyrics in, you know, on paper. He would not take the time to really, you know write and rewrite a lyric. Supposedly, he would go to the studio, listen to a beat for about 10 minutes, make some rhymes in his head, and then do it all in one take. Now, like I said, this is probably exaggerated, but it still it still remains that Jay-Z had a lot of natural talent, not a natural ability. This is effortless for him. As opposed to Kanye, who was working his behind off, you know, writing and rewriting 16 bars over and over and over, yet the resulting rap is still worse than something Jay-Z does off the top of his head.
But in spite of this, sorry, that was my wife texting me. In spite of this, uh, edit this out. <laughs> Jay-Z is recording for, sorry, cut this out, edit, 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 edit. Uh, this is right around um, 370 seconds, so. So in spite of this, Jay-Z is recording Kanye's beats because they're like nothing else heard in hip-hop. Uh, Kanye becomes one of the two main producers for the Jay-Z's 2001 album Blueprint, which ironically was scheduled to release on September 11th, 2001, and actually produces the song Takeover, which is a pretty important song in terms of uh, Jay's uh, beef with another recording artist named Nas. Uh, the song is called Takeover. It's a pretty, pretty important song. Um, yes, Nas responds with Ether. Ether is one of, if not the greatest uh, diss tracks of all time. And Ether, Ether was, good gosh, Ether is a bad, bad track. It's 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 brutal. Uh, however, I'd say Jay Z won the overall war because you know Jay Z gets a higher profile. And it's also about this time whenever I personally first heard of Kanye for the first time. Um, I liked the other producer on Blueprint, Just Blaze better at first um, because he yelled out just blaze at the beginner end of any of his song I was, I know, as a kid I was amused but as I listened to the album I found that I like Kanye's productions a bit better uh, most particularly with H to the Izzo or Izzo or Hova it comes with a lot of different names uh, that is Kanye's coming out party as a producer it's a song that really puts him on the map it makes the rap world go oh man this guy he's good that's a sick beat we might have to watch this guy as a producer uh, the song itself actually samples Jackson 5's I Want You Back, um, but it's sped up past the point of any recognition. Also, uh, Kanye does appear in the music video for H to the Izzo uh, about two years before anybody really cares who he is. It's a two-second cameo, but I always show my classes that. So now Kanye is pretty popular as a producer, but nobody wants to sign him as a rapper. He wants to be a rapper. Everybody wants him to be a producer. Uh, his rhymes are not the best, uh, even the ones he gets ghostwritten. Uh, he does go get ghostwriters for quite a while. He still has ghostwriters. And his whole demeanor of a middle-class college dropout really doesn't mess with the expectations of rappers as cool gangsters. He turns down numerous record deals from labels who only want him as a producer, most notably Capitol Records. That's when he, he's almost with until the very end. But then he finds out they just think of him as a producer and he gets upset, and so he, he, he nixes the deal. Uh, he finally does get signed by Rockefeller as both a producer and a rapper. Now, remember, Rockefeller is Jay-Z's record label. He's put out a bunch of hits with Jay-Z and other artists. And so they're willing to sign him as both rapper and producer, but they really just want his beats. They don't believe in him. They don't think he's a very good rapper. But basically, and, you know, Jay-Z, Damon Dash, the two guys who are heading Rockefeller have both admitted this now. They're like, the idea was... They'll put out Kanye's album, it's going to stink, it's going to bomb, but they'll have secured Kanye's beats for the near future for, well, for more than the near future, and they can do more Jay-Z albums and stuff off them. Now, they never really directly tell Kanye this, but it's pretty clear. Uh, there's a great behind-the-scenes documentary where they show Kanye in the studio with Jay-Z, and God, you can tell Kanye is really like, trying his heart out to like show off these beats and rap for Jay-Z. This is after Kanye is signed, and you know, he's like, Oh, Jay, I've got all these great rhymes, and he's rapping for Jay, and Jay's pretending to nod his head, and then Kanye's all full of himself, and he walks out of the building, walks out of the studio, I should say. And Jay Z doesn't realize that the camera's still recording. 
and he kind of leans over to another guy in the studio. He thinks it's just the two of them. He's like, man, I'm just effing with this guy. Other guy kind of nudges and points at the camera. Jay-Z realizes, oh, God, I'm still on camera. And he's got this horrified deer-in-the-headlights look. He's like, oh, man, uh, this is bad. And then he goes all of a sudden, oh, yes, Kanye West. He's incredible. He's going to be the... It's very awkward, overly bubbly. It's, it's like no Jay-Z you've ever heard before. And I don't know if Kanye saw the video at the time, but it'd be very devastating to see your uh, boss slash idol insulting you as such. So I bet you're wondering, does anybody believe in Kanye? The answer is, is his mom. Yeah, just his mom. Uh, not even his on-again, off-again girlfriend. Uh, they dated from about 2002 to eh, right about 2007. Um, actually, his girlfriend's later his fiance. She's even lukewarm about his prospects as a rapper. She's okay with him producing, but doesn't think he'll become a good rapper. And as I've stated before, uh, his mom had serious reservations about his prospects and was afraid he'd inevitably not make it, even though he's now supposedly signed with Rockefeller. So that does have to be isolating, and it was, honestly. Uh, by the fall of 2002, he's overworking himself. He feels that if he doesn't have the talent, he's going to have to have to work, outwork everybody, prove his worth, do all the beats for everybody, um, stretches himself way too thin, pass a point of exhaustion, and on October 23rd, 2002... One of the two most defining events of his life occurs because of this exhaustion. Now, if you're listening to me, please understand this is major, all right? This is major. So on that night, he's driving away from a recording studio in Los Angeles. He puts in far too much work. He's tired. He's on no sleep. And he falls asleep behind the wheel of his rented Lexus. Has a head-on collision with another car. This is a major, major accident. He could have very easily died. In fact, some might say he... You know, ordinarily he would have died or, or should have died considering the severity of the accident. Um, he has some injuries, but the main injury is his jaw. His jaw is just shattered. It's broken in several different places. Uh, they wire up his jaw just to kind of keep it in place until they can do surgery, reconstructive surgery on it. And they're going to have to do several reconstructive surgeries on it. And it's in this hospital bed that he claims now that he had a divine revelation. He saw God and he felt God tell him, that pretty much, you know, I'm about to hand you the world. Just know that any given time I could take it away from you. Like, remember this hunger. Remember how much you desire this. I'm going to about to give you the world. And he feels now that God's going to bless his rap career. So, yeah. You're wondering, wait, Kanye is talking about God now? And the answer is, yeah, he is. Uh, his faith journey is actually not a recent conversion. It really belittles his life and career to say he only just got really turned on to Christianity. If anything was his so-called road to Damascus moment, it was the car crash. But he's still in the hospital bed. And two weeks after this accident, with his jaw wired shut, he hobbles into a recording studio to rap about his experience, his recent experiences in the car crash. The resulting song was called Through the Wire, and it's Kanye's first solo hit. And it's a really remarkable achievement, because his voice is clearly distorted. It's evident he's in a lot of pain. He's literally rapping through wires, through a wired shut jaw. Um, he's able to make pretty poignant rhymes off the car crash. Now, the version you probably have heard as a single or on the album that later comes out is not the original version. I actually have heard the original version. There's some rhymes he changes up because they're not accurate. Uh, for instance, in the original version, he says he's in the same hospital where both Biggie Smalls and Tupac died, where that's not actually accurate. Um, only Biggie Smalls died in that hospital. Uh, Tupac died in uh, Las Vegas, not Los Angeles. So there's a little bit of rhymes of that, but the original version is way more distorted. Like his, his voice just sounds awful. Uh, the later version, it's, it's sometime later. Uh, this song leaks online through various mixtapes and releases a single in September of 2003, uh, 2003. 
Uh, I first heard it in July of 03, probably late July, early August. Um, it was my first time hearing about him as a, con- as a solo artist. I, I knew of his producing, of course, because I, I like Jay-Z. But I had heard like an early MP3 of it uh, through probably LimeWire or whatever service I was using at the time. And I remember thinking, like, man, you, you can't buy stock in rappers, but if you could, I would sell everything and put it on this guy. He's going to the moon. When I went back to Mississippi College, I championed him to anybody who would listen. I was like, yo, this new Kanye guy is about to become the biggest thing in the world, maybe more than just rap. So is this song a hit? Uh, well, it does a lot better than Rockefeller expected. It gets a really good music video. Um it's popular, really pushes up the release of his first album into February of 04, which I bought uh, not opening day, but the first weekend. Uh, the, the song, sorry, the album is to be entitled College Dropout, which acknowledges this event that so upset his mother. He also revamps a lot of the songs, changing the lyrics to be about things not common in rap music, things like being self-conscious, fear of disappointing your parents, not fitting in, and hosts of other issues most people wouldn't talk about. Now, to be fair, Rockefeller also revamped some of the songs to be a little bit more commercial-friendly. They bring in more um, guest artists and things like that. So some of the songs uh, are just like kind of generic, like slow jams or uh, uh, Kanye's workout plan. But you can tell there's some of there, like uh, All Falls Down, Spaceship, uh, Through the Wire, of course, Family Business, which are much more personal. Uh, he also includes the song Jesus Walks, which was originally done by a Chicago rapper by the name of Rhymefest. And Kanye actually used to produce for Rhymefest, and Rhymefest sold Kanye the lyrics to the first verse of Jesus Walks. The, uh, you, if you Google around, you can find Rhymefest's version of Jesus Walks, which is pretty identical in terms of the first verse. And yes, this is a song about Jesus on his first album. And it's, if you're asking, is this a gospel song? It's not really. It's more what I like to say it's gospel adjacent. Just gospel adjacent. He's really just talking about generically about how Jesus is needed in the world and more rappers should talk about Jesus. Theologically, though, it's about as deep as something like Jesus' love or something that Lionel Richie does with the Commodores. Yeah, it's a cool inclusion on an album, and it's actually pretty impressive. He gets secular stations to play this music, and also, you know, gets a video, actually several videos on MTV about it. But it's not something you're going to hear, like, Sunday mornings for an altar call or anything. Um, it's also about this time where he does buy this large uh, Jesus face chain, which becomes his most prominent piece of jewelry for a very long time. And the album does really, really well. Uh, better than Rockefeller ever dreamed it would be. Uh, conventional wisdom, and there's a lot of studies about this, is that um, listeners, and particularly like white male, young white male listeners, like rap music because of wish fulfillment, living vicariously through rappers. But Kanye showed there was actually a market for rappers who were, you know, middle class, war Ralph Lauren, Christian, suburban children, professors. Other rappers might act who you wanted to be like, but Kanye seemed like somebody you already were. Someone you could genuinely relate to. I mean, I like listening to Jay-Z and other more gangster rappers, but at the time, I really felt like Kanye was telling my life story. And this all should be happy. You know, he's got success, but there are some problems, because he's never comfortable with all the success. All the people who once doubted him and mocked him are now singing his praises. I mean, he's able to live more than he ever dreamed. He's able to start his own clothing line, start his own record label. Other people are becoming stars because of their proximity to him, uh, most notably John Legend. John Legend is introduced to the world primarily as Kanye's pianist, and now John Legend has an EGOT, for crying out loud. Uh, uh, EGOT is an Emmy, Grammy, Oscar, Tony. It's kind of like, there's not many people who do that, and John Legend's one of them. I want to say he's also, like, one of, if not the youngest, 
people to get an EGOT, even though I think the people who wrote Frozen, that husband-wife duo, might be a little younger. Anyway, uh, Kanye is becoming more popular than everybody else signed to Rockefeller. Uh, remember Jay-Z had retired, quote-unquote, in 03 to become president of Def Jam after the Black Album? So the main people still signed to Rockefeller are guys like Benny Siegel and Freeway, who they are not as good as Kanye. <laughs> they're not as big as Kanye. They're probably better rappers, lyrically at least, but they're not as big of a star as Kanye. Kanye's getting dream collaborations out the wazoo. He's producing for Britney Spears, producing for Madonna, Maroon 5, host of other mainstream non-rap artists. Uh, in fact, one of my favorite Kanye collaborations, honestly, probably one of my top five favorite Kanye songs of all time, it's an unreleased song he does with John Mayer called Bittersweet. And although, you know, Kanye felt that God was going to give him success, all the success might have been too much too soon. And so he gets self-conscious. He's very self-conscious. And he overcompensates by acting braggadocious. He wants to cover over his insecurities by acting like the biggest arrogant you-know-what in the world. And this becomes part of his public persona. As his public persona starts raising, he becomes known as a cocky guy who complains at reward shows whenever he doesn't win. And then whenever he wins at award shows, he complains and gets cocky about it. And I should mention, he might have actually had some mental illnesses to begin with. Um, it's pretty evident, listening to him talk, that he had had anxiety and depression issues since he was a kid, which were not helped by his loneliness. Still, his profile is growing before 2005, but the fame is not really helping his, uh, his underlying insecurities and possible mental illnesses. In uh, 2005, he's also preparing the release of his second album entitled Late Registration. Uh, there's there's a four part um, uh, four part trilogy. That's not the word. Tetralogy, I guess, is the actual word. Basically, his first four albums were supposed to be kind of the saga of the dropout bear, who's uh, kind of his logo for the longest time. This little stuffed teddy bear. Uh, the idea that you know it starts out with him dropping out of college, then re-registering, then graduating, then finding a quote unquote good ass job. Those were supposed to be the first four albums. Only three of them are released for reasons we're going to get into. But 2005, yeah, that's when Katrina happens, and that's when one of his first, like, major public outbursts happens. Um, you know, during Katrina, there was a lot of misreporting or kind of, uh, uh, there were issues with some of the reporting, particularly how they depicted African Americans. Um, you know, they would call African-American people looters as opposed to white people who break into stores and call them scavengers. Uh, there's a lot of misinformation. Like, I don't know if you remember during Katrina, but there's a lot of misinformation about what exactly was going on with the Superdome. Uh, there were reports of, like, cannibalism, like, one day in. I, I'm not saying the Superdome was great, but I, it was definitely not cannibalism. But it was kind of like reaffirming, again, this kind of negative stereotyping of African-Americans. Kanye is upset about this. And so during a telethon to support victims of the storm on live television he kind of says some stuff about you know he's upset about how they're reporting the news then they cut to mike myers who says something about please raise money for the storm and then kanye says his infamous george bush doesn't care about black people and of course you remember that everybody does but kanye is not alone in thinking this uh such criticism of bush and other republicans had been very very long lasting in the black community extremely long lasting in the black community but Kanye did it on TV, and he was blunt. It was also the first time that most mainstream uh, people who don't listen to rap music, like mainstream America, who doesn't listen to rap music, had ever heard of Kanye. And it kind of plays into this narrative that Hollywood hates conservatives. Uh, the Dixie Chicks thing had happened like a year or two before, uh, whenever they criticized George W. Bush. And I don't think their careers recovered. I think they're still pariahs. And so, yeah, Kanye is seen as a typical Hollywood liberal who's out of touch with real America, 
kind of fits into this preconceived narrative, and most conservatives just leave him there. And this is one of the reasons why his recent activities are viewed as a conversion rather than part of a much larger whole. All right, and we're back. Uh, so after all this, late registration and graduation both come out. Graduation comes out in 05. Uh, registration comes out in 05. Uh, sorry. Late registration comes out in 05. Graduation comes out in 07. They both come out as albums. They're pretty well received. Like I said, it's part of this plan four-part saga. He's seen as a bit of a loudmouth, but a very talented one. Oh, well, a very hardworking one. His production is always really good. You know, his rhymes might be a little suspect. Uh, he's now engaged to be married to his longtime on-again, off-again girlfriend, and he's putting, he's starting to work on what's going to be the fourth album, uh, Good Ass Job. And something major happens, the second of two major life events. Please understand, this is the second of the major life events. If you know nothing else about Kanye, you need to about this and the car accident. So in late 2007, his mom dies unexpectedly from complications from plastic surgery. And that does sound awful. Yeah, poor Kanye. Indeed, poor Kanye. The one person who believed in him. The one person he could trust and confide in. The one person who kept him sane with all the fans, all the fame, all of his like mental insecurities, all of his mental illness stuff, his anxieties. The one who keeps him sane and grounded is gone. In McBatter's words, he feels like it's his fault. Now, why does he feel it's his fault? Well, she was getting plastic surgery. It was like a, know, like a breast augmentation and I think like a liposuction. In preparation for his wedding. And he was going to pay for it, you know. she By this time, she retired from her job as department head at Chicago State. Uh, she was working as his manager. But still, you know, he was big and supportive. And, you know, he wanted to, like, you know, buy his mom all the best stuff for all the stuff she did for him over the years. And, you know, ironically, at first, the first plexus surgeon she went to said he wouldn't do the surgery because she had a heart condition. And said, you know, something might happen during the surgery. And then so Kanye gets upset, finds another surgeon who's willing to do it. And his mom does indeed die from complications of the surgery. And I know that's heartbreaking, but you're probably thinking that's not really his fault. And it really isn't his fault, but he has that guilt. Uh, he breaks off his engagement shortly thereafter. He feels the law in the world and feels reeling from his loss. And this is when Kanye goes off the deep end. Um... He still claims to be a Christian in this time period, but his relationship with God is, like, really distant. His music gets a lot darker. He actually distanced himself from rap music. Um, the fourth album, Good Ass Job, never came out. Instead, there was the fourth album was entitled 808s and Heartbreak. Has no rapping whatsoever. It's basically Kanye just singing through autotune, and it's really depressed. And he's talking about, you know, loss and breakups and things like that. Uh, his doubts and mental illness start to manifest even more. His already shaky public persona became even more erratic and outspoken. And the public thought it was just Kanye being Kanye, but it's clearly the cry of somebody who was hurting. To lose your mom is devastating. Um, I know this from firsthand experience. Last year, actually almost a year ago now, my mom died out of nowhere. Um, she was fine, and then she wasn't. She kind of collapsed and she was in a coma for about a week and then she died and we don't really know why um we have like guesses but um you know we never did an autopsy or anything so we don't have any definitive answers we just know that one day she is here one day she wasn't and if i can get personal for a second um i haven't felt normal since then like there have been moments where things feel normal more normal than others but they're like seconds and there have only been a handful of those 
no one day has felt completely normal. And I, I would have a lot of, I mean, I don't, I, I, I do. I, I, I consider myself a Christian, but like, I have a lot of questions for God about how this all happened. And, um, there are some questions that really aren't getting answered. And I'm in a very different place faith-wise than I was before for a lot of different reasons, but uh, my mom is a big part of that. And it's true. I, I really feel like I understand Kanye a bit better, and maybe not as a whole, but definitely this time in his life, ever since I did lose my mom. Uh, a side note, my mom, Beverly Tully, she was wonderful. She actually liked Kanye. Well, she liked that I like Kanye. She never really listened to his songs. But she'd always ask me like how he was doing as an artist, and whenever I played his beat, she she'd tend to like him. So you're wondering, does this provide insight into Taylor Swift? Yeah, a little bit. Uh, you have to remember, Kanye wasn't really trying to insult Taylor Swift per se. He was trying to praise Beyonce, who's the wife of his boss, idol, you know, weird big brother figure now, Jay Z. But it backfires. A lot of backlash against Kanye, which is nothing new, but. Two things that happened that are more personal that hurt him more is, you know, first of all, Jay-Z's not really impressed by this. He's not amused. And also, President Barack Obama uh, calls Kanye a jackass for this. And uh, I'm not saying they're the same figure, but Kanye saw a lot of himself in Obama. I mean, they're both Chicago guys. Both have strained relationships with their fathers. Both had mothers who died uh, young and tragically. Uh, both are outsiders who never really filled in with any category. There, There's a lot of parallels there. And so Kanye at first kind of saw a lot of himself in Obama, but then he feels a little betrayed. It's kind of like Jay-Z insulting him whenever he left the room uh, all those years ago. Uh, Kanye has imposter syndrome, complex about not fitting in. And then when you hear comments like that, it kind of gives proof to all of your worst nightmares and fears. Uh, this Taylor Swift thing makes Kanye more of a pariah, results in even darker music. There's two albums, uh, my... My twisted, my dark and twisted, my beautiful dark and twisted fantasy is one, and the other one is um, Jesus, and they're both well produced, creative, but they're way darker, way more stripped down. Uh, Jesus in particular, it's like industrial sounding. It's a, uh, it's it's dark, man. It's really dark. Now you're wondering, wait, Jesus, is that the I'm a God album? I'm like, yeah, it was. Uh, he went a little overboard with the uh, imagery on that one, didn't he? I don't think it was really him being self delusional about being a deity or delusions of grandeur a lot of people do look at this one especially some of the energy that comes out of it it's like oh my gosh kanye is like being anti-religious here or anti-christian i just think it's more of a cry for help than anything else or the ego and fame and remorse and an untreated mental illness uh you gotta remember like jay-z's nickname is hova and it's short for jehovah or jehovah and i don't think anybody's ever said oh my gosh you know that jay-z is trying to be the hebrew god of the old testament now, as for Kanye's mental illnesses, um, I'm not like his therapist, and I'm not that kind of doctor. I mean, I have a PhD in history, but nothing really about mental stuff. So I can only go with what he's said publicly and what can be reasonably inferred. Uh, Kanye has stated he does have bipolar disorder. And he has medication for bipolar disorder, but he gets off the medication every once in a while because, well, fairly often because he doesn't like the way it makes him feel, makes him feel like it's stifling his creativity. He's also been on antidepressants. He's rapped about being on antidepressants before for his anxiety and his depression, which, as we've stated before, that's been going on since he was a child, so that's not too unusual. 
Uh, he weirdly also claimed that he was addicted to opioids for a while after his own liposuction, which I don't know if that was really for pain or probably just for sheer like anxiety of going through the same procedure that killed his mother, and that was like a very elective procedure. Um, there's probably other ones in there. Um, I think the mental illnesses are a baseline, and it's they're all exasperated by like fame and you know the stuff he's gone through and puts on himself. I don't think it's mental illness in of itself. And also, uh, just just a quick word, uh, kind of a side note too. Um, it's okay to like be mentally ill. Like that's fine. Like just seek treatment. Like don't stop taking your medication if the medication's helping. Like um, there was a time where I had to go on antidepressants, uh, stress related stuff. I, I was I kind of stretched myself too thin. There was some school stuff going on, and it just kind of kind of got to me. And um, there's nothing wrong with that, you know? Um, getting off your antidepressants, like, out of nowhere is one of the worst things you can do. So, uh, you know, be smart about it. Ta taper it off, you know, talk to your doctor, your psychiatrist, and uh, make sure everything's everything's good. So, yeah, uh, you're probably wondering, wait, doesn't Kanye also marry Kim Kardashian around this time? And he does. He has several children with her. And the kids seem to calm him down a bit. Not marrying Kim Kardashian because, good God, that Kardashian family is nuts. That doesn't ease anybody's life. But uh, having kids kind of changes things a little bit. Um, his music starts to get a little bit more melodic. There's a little bit more softness to it again. Um, probably most notably in 2014, he puts out a song with Paul McCartney. Yeah, that Paul McCartney. You know, the Paul McCartney. Uh, called Only One. It's about his late mother basically talking about how his mom, you know, comes to watch his daughter. He has a lot of remorse about his mom not being able to meet his daughter or any of his kids. And once again, I can kind of relate to that because, you know, uh, I don't have any kids right now, but if I do get kids in the future, they're never going to go to my mother. And my mother was a very important part of my life. And ironically, my mom actually liked that song when she was alive. Um, she really liked that song. She thought it was sweet. It reminded her of uh, her father, who she lost when she was about my age. And um, she was also amazed that Kanye knew who the Beatles were. And like also that Paul McCartney would record with Kanye. She thought that was a very interesting very, very interesting uh, duet right there. And that's getting us kind of close to the modern day. And in some respects, uh, the Kanye portion of what I'm about to talk about is coming to an end, but I'm going to have to talk about politics and religion for a little bit. Uh, by 2015, he said he'd be running for president for in 2020. Uh, he changes now to 2024 because of Trump's second term. Uh, I guess maybe to get back at Obama for calling him a jackass. I, I don't know the rationale. Uh, most people took this as just Kanye being Kanye, publicity stunt, not being too seriously. Uh, the same thing whenever he starts supporting Donald Trump. Uh, you got to remember when Trump started, it was seen as a total publicity stunt. Nobody took him too seriously as a candidate. Uh, Kanye does become a darling for conservative Republicans when he starts wearing kind of the red hat, talks about how conservatives freed the slaves and how Democrats were the party of slavery. Uh, stuff like that, which is pretty, pretty boilerplate uh, talk on Twitter or something. Um, they're they're kind of basic historical facts, but... I guess most people don't realize that they're basic historical facts, or if you're around, like, a history person, they, they'd tell you that pretty straightforward. Uh, Kanye also gets into a little bit of hot water whenever um, he says that Candace Owens, who's a black conservative kind of, I don't want to say pundit, but she's a figure, uh, has some good ideas, but uh, the backlash was severe against that, and he kind of backed off of that. He's tried pretty hard to be fairly apolitical um, since, but to an extent, which we're going to get into. 
Um, he kind of becomes a conservative darling in this time, like in the past two years or so, which is really weird. Like Donald Trump and Trump's family have like tweeted several messages of support to Kanye uh, because he's supposedly become like a martyr or like kind of emblematic of like, oh, they're doing to Kanye what they did to Trump because, you know, he's now conservative and Hollywood people hate conservatives or Christians or whatever. And this is the part where I'm going to have to pivot to history and politics just a little. And as I said, you know, I try to keep the trademark uh, nonpartisan and inoffensive, even keeled. But we're going to go to a little bit of history, just about uh, the makeup of political parties. So until the 1930s or so, uh, black people who could vote, remember uh, voting rights were a big issue throughout the country. In the South, they started stripping away the rights of black people to voting. But if a black person could vote, they would generally vote in the Republican Party. In fact, more than generally, almost all would vote for Republican. The thing being, you know, Democrats were the party of the Confederacy, but Republicans were the ones who freed the slaves. Now, in 1932, uh, FDR starts kind of courting a growing northern black urban populace. Uh, the Great Migration had occurred. You have African Americans moving into places like Chicago and New York. Uh, Detroit. And so basically FDR says, hey, you know, you're living this new urban lifestyle, but also what has the Republican Party really done for you since Reconstruction? Yeah, Lincoln freed the slaves, and what has he done for you lately? And it's not a great movement at first, but it kind of puts a seed amongst uh, this northern black urban population that perhaps the Democratic Party might speak to them more better. Now, the thing is, even though FDR is a Northern Democrat, the bulk of the Republican Party, like the, the longtime members, the ones with the most seniority in Congress and stuff, are Southern Republicans. Sorry, not Southern Democrats. Southern Democrats. FDR is a Democrat. And these Southern Democrats, they're kind of, huh, about, you know, civil rights and things. There's growing dissatisfaction within the Democratic Party about the role of African-Americans in civil rights. Now, this is exasperated in 1960, when Kennedy also appeals more towards African-American voters and really starts pushing this idea that civil rights should be a hallmark. And this also gets him very upset by the uh, Southern Democrat congresspeople. They don't like it very much. And the shift of black voters to the Democratic Party, it, it, it's kind of cemented by 64 and 68. Um, in 64, uh, the Republicans run a guy by the name of Barry Goldwater, who does a very nationalistic kind of, I don't want to say white separatist, but like uh, very conservative. It, it, it's seen as isolating towards a lot of African-Americans who are in the Republican Party, uh, most notably Jackie Robinson. Uh, Jackie Robinson, who was a longtime you know, Republican, he's the guy who desegregated baseball, even he's like, yeah, I'm, I'm pulling out of the Republican Party now. I, I can't support Goldwater. And then in 68, Nixon really, really goes towards the dissatisfied, disgruntled Southern Democrat vote. It's a so-called Southern strategy. Now, Nixon's an interesting character. He's actually a lifelong member of the NAACP. He claims to be this kind of, you know, stalwart supporter of African Americans. And he's not overt in his, you know, language about what to do with African Americans and civil rights. Instead of saying we need to get rid of civil rights, he says things like we need to get, you know, small government, um, stop federal interference, you know, we're not going to meddle in your affairs, states' rights, that sort of thing. And this switch really cements in 1980 with Ronald Reagan. Reagan is the one who's able to get, like, 
the South to go solidly Republican, which has remained pretty much since. I know Bill Clinton in 92 is an exception. But, uh, but, you know, that's kind of how we get to the modern day, where most African Americans tend to vote Democrat, and most Southern states tend to vote Republican. So I bet you're wondering, uh, wait, Kanye's a black Republican. And the thing is, that's iffy. Uh, Kanye actually didn't vote in the 2016 election. He said if he did vote, he would have voted for Trump. But there's, there's pretty ample evidence that he's mainly interested in self-promotion than politics. Um, he's probably supporting the party because it's generating controversy and this publicity. Uh, but some in the Blexit, uh, Blexit, Black Exit, kind of like Brexit, it's supposedly this movement of African Americans removing from the Republican Party, very akin to how African Americans left the Democratic Party back in the 1930s or so. They say he's a genuine supporter. He's been put on some promotional material. Then he has to be taken off the promotional material. Uh, the pretty much the only political stance I've heard him really say is that he likes having lower taxes, which, who doesn't like having lower taxes? And he said a few things that he's like, yeah, I don't necessarily support abortion. But other than that, he's not too political. And now we get to the Christianity section. And I'm not gonna lie, this is going to be even-keeled as possible. But I'm well aware religion is a much tougher subject than politics. I'm giving you the standard disclaimer. Okay, here we go. So about a year or two ago, mainly about a year ago, I want to say it was in early 2019, Kanye starts doing these so-called Sunday services, which are kind of like a church service. He plays some new music. There might be some light preaching. He doesn't do the preaching. Uh, they're, they're, in, they're at his home in, you know, California. He had to pay money to get in. Famous people start attending, too. Some of his famous friends. You know, his wife's there all the time. Kid Cudi shows up. Uh, some of these actually get televised. I want to say the Easter service was the first one he televised. And his music starts becoming more and more overtly religious and gospel. And it's like I said, this is not entirely new for Kanye. I mean, his entire career, early interviews, public persona prior to his mom's death, he's very much pushing this Christian line. And it, it actually kind of gets an earlier stance in his album, The Life of Pablo. He does a, a duet, well, collaboration with Kurt Franklin, who, Kurt Franklin, he's been around forever in the Christian music game. He's one of the biggest gospel artists out there, period. But the new album is pretty much entirely a Christian rap album. Now, it's a very short album. Not as short as his last year's uh, album, Yay, which was like 15 minutes. I want to say Jesus is King is about 30 minutes, if that. Uh, the gospel elements are there. They are kind of generic. Uh, it's being hailed in some evangelical circles as Kanye's massive conversion. There's also some elements of prosperity gospel in there, which I'm not going to get into, but it's a thing. But I bet you're wondering, who are the evangelicals? All right. The thing with evangelicals is they have a history, but it's not as long of a history as they want to, to appear to have. That's very common in history in general, not just in religion, but the idea that your movement is older than it actually is. You know, evangelicals claim they've been around forever. And the thing with Christianity, okay, Christianity has been around for several thousand years, 2,000 years, <laughs> 2,000 years now, almost exactly. I mean, that's where our dating system is. And... Aside from a few core beliefs like Jesus is cool and the Bible is important, it's like very different in terms of location and time period. Like, you know, the medieval Catholic Church in, let's say, France or Spain or something, that is very different theologically, um, belief-wise, um, ritual, manifestation, like... 
it's very different than like let's say a Methodist church in the American South during the Second Great Awakening. Like, yeah, they like Jesus. They think he's cool and important, and the Bible's important. But like the interpretation of the Bible, what what verses are highlighted more than others? You know, what the expectation is for service? Is it more the individual or the church? All that changes. And so modern evangelicalism is no different. It kind of exists in a specific time and place. Uh, the place being the United States, and the time being eh, late 70s, early 80s is when it really starts getting formated. Now, there's a few hallmarks we can get into. I don't want to get into deep theology here because I don't really have the time, but evangelicals place a lot of emphasis upon this conversion experience. It's like singular moment. Uh, you can call it getting saved or being born again, whatever. But they place a lot of influence upon a singular event where one turns away from their life of sin and turns towards God. Um, there is older precedence for this um, in things like AA. AA talks a lot about, you know, going to rock bottom. You know, like until you've had rock bottom, you really can't become clean from alcoholism. Uh, yeah, there are some Bible occurrences where you have like, you know, I mean, Saul of Tarsus is probably the most well-known one. He has a road to Damascus experience, but... Uh, Maybe some of Jesus' disciples, they're really putting on this great onus on a singular conversion experience. If one doesn't have a distinct moment, whenever they remember, hey, this is when I turn toward God, their salvation may be suspect or maybe non-existent at all. This is somewhat unique to evangelicals because most previous, not most previous, but plenty of previous in incarnations of Christianity don't have this same emphasis. It really seems to be cemented around, you know, 70s and 80s. Now, there is a precedence in the United States with the fundamentalists. They kind of come around in the 1920s. In fact, a lot of evangelicals will call themselves fundamentalists. But, okay, if historically speaking, not necessarily theologically speaking, but historically speaking, we consider evangelicals and fundamentalists separate entities. Uh, fundamentalists come around in the 1920s. Uh, they're very much a reaction against modernity. Uh, 1920s has a lot of changes in the United States. Fundamentalists are against it. They want to go back to like traditional womanhood. Um, you know, they're not cool in science. Technology's bad. Cities are bad. Uh, evangelicals aren't necessarily against modernity. Uh, you see that they are cool with cities. Uh, they're cool with some expansion for roles of women. Uh, they're okay using modern technologies, particularly prosperity gospel and the televangelists who are considered part of this evangelical movement. Uh, they're pretty keen on using technology in new formats. But the main difference between evangelicals and most previous forms of Christianity is that it's much more politically conservative. Very politically conservative. Uh, why do they get so political, you might ask? Well, if you ask the evangelical, they'd probably give you some story about, eh, 1973, Roe v. Wade. You know, the Supreme Court said abortion is okay, and that, that kind of shows that America's long decline from the way it once was as a good, moral, upstanding country was beginning, and it's only accelerated since then, and they need to be the loyal remnant. Uh, is this accurate? The answer is, well, I'm not going to get into the morality, but historically speaking, kind of. I mean, yes. Church attendance in the United States has long been slacking off. It was actually highest in the 1950s, but I would argue that the 1950s had artificially high numbers because church attendance was really, really um, 
seen as necessary for being a good American. It was seen as one's civic responsibility, not necessarily religious. Uh, the religion of the 1950s, I think most evangelicals wouldn't call Christianity. It was very, very uh, mamby-pamby, not too theologically in-depth. Uh, yeah, and also churches in the 1950s, they tended not to be partisan. Uh, both parties claimed to be like, oh yeah, we're good Christians, and you know, we should talk about how voting is a very important you know, civic responsibility in church, but they would not really advocate one party or one candidate over another. Now, am I oversimplifying? Yes, because I've been talking for I don't know how long now, but come on, let's keep it going. But the rise of the moral majority, which comes around the 1980s, and I might do a separate one about them because they are very much important for evangelicalism. Uh, evangelicals become more partisan than earlier Christian groups, and they really come in line with the Republican Party. In turn, Republicans start using more evangelical language. Uh, for instance, George W. Bush, whenever he runs in 2000, he says that he is a born-again Christian. He says it's a main part of his identity. Uh, being born again, or considering yourself as a born-again Christian, is major for evangelicals. Now, pretty much all presidents choir to George W. Bush, uh, they did claim to be Christian. Um, like, all of them. I, I can't think of one president before or since George W. Bush who claimed to be anything but Christian. I mean, uh, William Howard Taft was a universalist, which... Uh, sorry, he was a Unitarian. Well, Unitarian Universalist, which... Some Christian denominations don't claim to be Christian, but, um, yeah, he's the only one who was a denomination, which is kind of, well, are considered not as, uh, as high as other denominations. But, uh, George W. Bush would only be the second, quote-unquote, born-again Christian. I bet you're wondering, who's the first? The answer is Jimmy Carter. I'm going to do one about him later, because that's a one for another day. Now, the real bugaboo is how are evangelicals in terms of race relations? And the, the, the answer is complicated. If you recall earlier, uh, I said most evangelicals claim that it was abortion that got them to become political. But there's actually growing evidence that uh, it wasn't really abortion that made some of the first evangelicals start mobilizing to political stuff. It's actually backlash against school desegregation. Uh, this idea being that they don't want their children to be forced to go to school with black students. Now, like I said, it's very complicated because, you know, the black church has had a black Christian church is a major hallmark of pretty much African-American experience in the United States. And plenty of African-Americans might consider themselves evangelical. But if we're talking about mainline, not mainline, but if we're talking about white evangelicals, their views on race are kind of... Or, um, a lot of them claim to be colorblind in terms of race, but there have been issues, I'm trying to be even-keeled about this, where people of color, both within and without the uh, evangelical community, claim to be marginalized or that their voices are being heard or they're being actively censored or, you know, suppressed in expressing their blackness. Can I give you a modern example? Yeah, in fact, I can give you one from this past week. Uh, Kurt Franklin, who I mentioned earlier, is a guy who did a duet with Kanye. He boycotted the Dove Awards. Uh, the Dove Awards, if you haven't heard of them, they are the major award show for Christian contemporary con ah, contemporary Christian music, which is a subset of evangelicalism that kind of it's kind of a shadow economy to the regular music business. They have their own award show. Anyway, um, Franklin discovered that the award show, the Dove Awards, had been editing some of his past acceptance speeches, and he's won decades of awards from them. Where basically he kind of makes calls for racial 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 justice. 
And this really upsets Franklin when he ever finds out that they censored it because he's like, wow, they're trying to strip away from my blackness. Or they're basically saying, don't be political about certain issues while, you know, they can be very political about others. Uh, evangelicals, like, really support Republican politics. And they tend to play the party line when it comes to race. Uh, another example is what happens to Lecrae. Lecrae was a Christian rapper. In fact, he was like the biggest Christian rapper for a long time. Evangelicals loved him until he starts talking about racial justice. Uh, he started doing some op-eds and some songs about, you know, police violence against guys like Alton Sterling, Philando Castile, uh, those various cases, and a lot of evangelicals didn't like it. I bet you're thinking this sounds like a big mess, and it is. And that's what Kanye's in the middle of. And really, had it not been for his public embrace of Donald Trump, it's unlikely that uh, Kanye would have been so warmly received by white evangelicals. Now, Trump has a... <sighs> evangelicals voted for Trump in very large numbers. And he also has kind of a complicated relationship with race, but we'll just leave it at that. Uh, there's this new narrative that a lot of evangelicals have crafted how, like, you know, Trump and Kanye's embrace of religion are related. Uh, not that Trump converted Kanye, but basically, like, it's evidence of a larger change in his life. Uh, for instance, Kanye claimed that his large income tax refund check of several million dollars was a gift from God or an example of how much God loves him. And that, you know, Kanye, he's this new road to Damascus type, solved Tarsus character, and that it's going to be great for Christianity. All these new churches are going to start. There's going to be a massive revival. And they've made a new narrative for him, which I hopefully you've seen. It, it kind of strips away a lot of his history and his past and makes him to a two-dimensional figure when he's got a lot of complexity. Kanye might be more openly Christian now, but it's not completely new. It's a another chapter in a very long story. So once again, this is Stuart Tully for Tully's Takes on History with probably 30 minutes or something now of audio, but we'll see what happens. Thank you and goodbye.